All right, we're going to look at Luke 22. Last week, Thursday night, early Friday morning of, uh, for last week of Jesus' life, we looked at the events that Jesus and the disciples are in the garden. Jesus prays, disciples sleep. Judas leads a group of soldiers to arrest Jesus. He betrays Jesus with a kiss. Jesus is arrested. Peter denies knowing Jesus. Jesus is then mocked and beaten as a false prophet. Where we focused was actually the activity in the garden. Jesus prays while the disciples sleep. And I said, to me, that's the key to everything between that scene and Easter Sunday. The, the, their behavior is set in that moment. Jesus prays. He wrestles with God. He comes out of that submitted to the will of his Father. And he's full of peace. And so as all of this abuse and injustice is thrust upon him, he's, able to hand, he's like a, the eye in the storm. He's able to handle those things. I don't think he enjoys it, but it doesn't rock him. It doesn't shake him. Peter, it was our picture of the disciples. He doesn't pray. He sleeps. Had good reason not to, not to pray. It was really late. They're not used to staying up late. He was exhausted with sorrow. Jesus says even, Peter wanted to. Your your spirit is willing. But ultimately, Peter didn't execute. His flesh was weak. And so when all of these things start swirling around, Peter's response is to panic. He cuts off a guy's ear. He denies knowing Jesus. We see fight and flight in Peter's response because he's disconnected from the Father. So we said for us, we're all going to experience temptation, tests, trials, tribulations, whatever label you want to put on difficulties. And if we're people of prayer, then we have a chance to to stand firm, to be faithful in the midst of that. If we're not, then we're done. So we're going to pick up. This is Friday morning at daybreak, maybe 5, 6 in the morning. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you're the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me, and if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. So according to the other Gospels, we know that the... This, it's the Sanhedrin, it's the 70 leaders plus the chief priest, his name is Caiaphas. These 71 men have been um, accusing Jesus all night. They're trying to get Jesus to say something so that they can then turn him over to the Roman government so the Roman government can kill him. The Jews are not allowed to execute the death penalty, and they want Jesus dead. This is not a, a fact-finding trial. They're not trying to figure out if Jesus is innocent or guilty. They've already decided that Jesus is guilty and that he deserves death. There's some scripture there up on the screen where you can see that. It, they've, Caiaphas, who's a high priest, has said it's better for Jesus to die than for all of us to get in trouble. The, the religious leaders have said we're trying to figure out how we can arrest him and kill him. Uh, they say explicitly to Pilate, the reason we're bringing him to you is because you're the only one that can execute the death penalty. We can't do that, and he needs to die. So they've been meeting all night trying to trap Jesus, trick Jesus. They've got these witnesses who come forward. None of them agree. And so finally they just point blank say to him, are you the son of God? And he says, yes. They take that as blasphemy, which in the Old Testament is a capital crime. Uh, and they would execute that by stoning. They're not allowed to do that. So now they've got something that they can use against Jesus. Then the whole assembly rose and led Jesus off to Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. 
Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted he stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if the man was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. So again, the whole trial with the Jewish leadership, they were just looking for something they could hang on him that Pilate would grab onto. They need a charge that Pilate says, okay, that rises to the level of a capital crime. Pilate doesn't care about blasphemy, so they shift from religious charges to political ones. He's subverting our nation. He's telling people not to pay taxes. That's a big deal to you, Pilate, correct? He's saying he's a king. That's a big deal to you. You don't care about blasphemy, but you do care about rebellion and revolution and insurrection, and that's what he's doing. He's stirring up all of those things among us. And so Pilate says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And he says, yeah, I am. If you look over in John's gospel, there's more detail on their exchange. They go back and forth, and Jesus says to him, I'm not that kind of king. My kingdom is not of this world. If it was, then people would fight for me. That's not what I'm doing. Basically, he's saying I'm not a political threat to you at this point. And so Pilate says to the Jewish leadership, I don't, there's, I don't see anything here that says he's leading a revolution. There's nothing here to me, to make me think that he's inciting a riot. So he's innocent. The leaders and the people start pressing, no, he's not. He's been doing this for a long time all over your territory. And then Pilate hears, oh, he's Galilean. Herod is over the Galilean territory, so let me send him to Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, Herod was greatly pleased. For a long time he had wanted to see Jesus. From what Herod had heard about Jesus, he hoped to see him perform a sign of some sort. He's looking for a magic trick. He plied Jesus with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him, dressing him in an elegant robe. They sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they'd been enemies. So Pilate is not kicking things upstairs because he doesn't know what to do. He's actually above Herod on the organizational chart. So he's saying to somebody underneath, you deal with this. I think he's innocent. These people are pressing me. I'm not sure what to do. He's a coward. And so he sends him to one of his subordinates. Maybe Herod can figure something out. Herod, idle curiosity at best. He's looking to be entertained, perform some parlor trick. For me, Jesus doesn't do those kinds of things. Jesus doesn't respond. So Herod insults him, dresses him up, sends him back to Pilate. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I've examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither is Herod, for he sent him back to you, sent him back to us, as you can see. He's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. But the whole crowd shouted, Away with this man, release Barabbas to us. Barabbas has been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So you get the irony there. This guy, Jesus, they're accusing him of being a political revolutionary. No basis for those charges. And they're saying, Release to us a political revolutionary who's incited a riot and has killed people. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. For the third time he spoke to them, why, what crime has this man committed? I found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that Jesus be crucified and their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand 
He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one that they asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. So you've got, again, you've got Pilate three different times. He says, this man is innocent. But the people and the religious leaders continue to press and say, we want him dead. Pilate, has a, he's a coward. He doesn't act on, he has, doesn't have any convictions. He knows Jesus is innocent. He's still willing to punish him, and that's not sending somebody to time out. That's beating him. He's still willing to do that, even though Jesus is innocent, to try to placate the crowd. It doesn't work. They want Jesus' blood. And so Pilate ultimately gives in. One thing you may be thinking is this is Friday morning, Tuesday, just three days before, the leadership, the Jewish leadership is afraid to arrest Jesus publicly because they say there may be a riot because everybody is for him. He's so popular, we're afraid if we arrest him, it's going to cause an uprising. So what happened between Tuesday and Friday? We don't know everything that went on. Uh, Matthew says the chief priests and the religious leaders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas instead of Jesus. So they're turning public opinion against him. I actually think when Jesus is let out, on that Friday, he doesn't look good. He's, he was, he's been beaten by the Roman, uh, by the Jewish guards who arrested him. He's been beaten by Herod's guards. Uh, he's been betrayed. All of his closest followers have abandoned him. And I think people are looking at him and going, that's, that's not the Messiah. It, that's, not the, that's not the one that God sent. God would never allow the one that he sent, this chosen one, to be betrayed and arrested and beaten. We're looking for a guy who's going to come in and conquer. And that guy doesn't look like he's conquering anything. So I think because he didn't meet their expectations and they physically saw him beaten and bloodied, they decided he's not the Messiah after all. Maybe on some level they even felt taken advantage of. He's been lying to us. He's been playing us. And that's maybe where some of their anger comes in, that they're so quick to, to, to do a 180 from waving palm branches to saying, we want him dead is because they feel like he's suckered them, at least for this period of time. So when we listen to that, kind of go, what's, what's our response to all of those things? This is the hour when darkness reigns. That's what Jesus says last week, talking about all these events leading up to his death and including his death. And for us, they're unique events. And so what's our, what's our connection point to them? Well, I'd say one thing for sure is, I hope, is it stirs gratitude in you. I hope you're thankful. Uh, Isaiah 53 makes it very plain that Jesus' suffering was necessary for our redemption. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Those are two different ways of saying sin. Um, the punishment that brought us peace, that reconciled us to God, was upon him. By his wounds were healed. His suffering was necessary. It wasn't gratuitous at all. And so my hope is this week maybe you'll read one of those passion stories. It won't take you long. Pick a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and read one of them. Just read from Good Friday on when Jesus is arrested all the way up to his, to his death. And my hope is it stirs some level of gratitude in you that Jesus voluntarily said, it's worth it to me. That's how much I love you. I love you enough to experience all of this in order for the possibility that you can be reconciled to me and to my father. Peter, 1 Peter 2, also says that Jesus' behavior in the midst of all of this injustice, in the midst of all of this abuse, is an example to us. It says, when you suffer for doing good, and you will, let Jesus be an example for you. He didn't defend himself. He didn't fight. He didn't moan. He just, he took it. Again, he's kind of the eye in the middle 
of the storm. He settled. I don't think he enjoyed any of it, but it didn't rock him. It didn't shake him. It didn't throw him. And the reason none of those things happened, the reason he was able to navigate through all of this wickedness, this hour when darkness reigns, he was able to navigate it with grace and peace, I think, again, goes back to the garden and what he did there. He prayed, yes, but what did he do in prayer? He got to a place where he, could, where he was submissive and submitted to the will of his Father. And that's what we'll spend the rest of our time looking at, this idea for us. We want to get to a place where we are submitted to the will of our Father as well. Where we're submitting to God, and that's a big concept. I'm going to try to bring it down here so that we can grab onto it. We're all going to experience difficulties. If we're people of prayer, then we have a chance to walk through those things faithfully. But whether difficult or great times, we'll have both. This idea of being submitted to the will of God is essential for us if we're going to live life well. So Matthew talks a little bit more about Jesus' prayer than Luke. And so I see it as a progression. You may disagree, but I see a progression there. The first time, I feel like Jesus is saying, I don't want to do this. If it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. That's what he wants. He doesn't want to experience, last week, it's not the physical suffering, it's the wrath of God. He doesn't want to experience God's righteous anger upon sin because he knows that's, that's going to separate him from his father. Then the second time he prays, I think there's a shift. Instead of saying, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, may your will be done. I think he's gone from saying, I don't want to do this, to if this is the only way, then okay. I, I see a shift there. You may not. Then he goes off and prays that same thing again, Matthew says. And when he comes back the third time, I think he's settled. I think he's come to grips with what God is asking of him because he says to everybody, it's like a coach. All right, let's go. He wakes everybody up. He says, my betrayer is coming. We've got stuff to do. It's game time. To me, that attitude says that he settled things with the Lord. Now, it was difficult. We read last week. He prayed to the point that he sweated blood. He was in anguish. This was not an intellectual exercise for him. This was deep wrestling with his father. But he comes out on the other side settled. This is what God wants, and I'm in. He says, Father, if you will, take this cup from me. And the father's response, remember last week, it wasn't to remove him from the circumstances. It was to give him an angel to strengthen him. I'm not going to remove you from, I'm going to strengthen you through. That's what the Father's response is to Jesus. And Jesus receives that says, okay, then let's, let's do this. And so for us, that's, we want to grab onto that idea. How do, I, how do we get to a spot where we are saying the same thing to the Father, where we can say, all right, let's go. I may start saying, I don't want to do this. Eventually, maybe I can get to, if this is the only way I'm in, but I want to end up saying, all right, God's given me the resources I need. I recognize what he's asking of me. Let's do this. Two, two pictures for you. This is Matthew 11. You've probably heard this passage before. Come to me, Jesus speaking. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, or it fits you well. And my burden is light, it's easy to carry. Those are two, that's a single yoke and a double yoke. It's this wooden implement that you put on the back of an oxen, an ox or, or two, oxen, two oxen, and that would allow them to pull a plow. And so Jesus is saying, I've got one of those for you. 
and it's going to fit you really well. And he's contrasting it to the yoke of the religious leaders. He says they tie up heavy loads. They put burdens on you, and they don't lift a finger to help you carry those things. That's not me. The thing that I'm putting on you, it's going to fit. It's not going to be a burden. It's going to be easy for you to carry. That his yoke is the life that he wants us to live. He's inviting us into a way of life. That's, the, that's his yoke. On one level, it's this message of reconciliation with God. The religious leaders say, here's how you need to be reconciled to God. You need to follow the law better. You need to follow these 613 commands better than you currently are. You're not strict enough. You're not observant enough, and that's why you keep falling short. And what Jesus says is you don't have to obey better. You've got to trust more. That's my yoke. It's not do better. It's not be better. It's recognize your need for a Savior and trust me. Old covenant, new covenant. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So that's, he, he asks that for everybody. He says, here, that's what I'm inviting all of you into. Everyone. Every tribe, tongue, nation. From every time. That's a general invitation to everyone. But there's also specific things that he's inviting you into for your life. And we'll spend a little time looking at that. Here's your second picture. This is from Acts 26. That's a, that's a goad. That's an ox goad is what that's called. It's a pointy stick. Uh, so Saul is talking to King Agrippa, and he's telling him his testimony. And he's saying, I was a fanatic to stamp out Christianity. I went around throwing people in jail. If there was votes to put people to death, I was always in favor. I even tried to get people to blaspheme. The same thing that we saw this the Sanhedrin do with Jesus. We're going to try to get him to say something we can use. Paul said, I did that. I was so obsessed. That's his word. I was so obsessed with persecution that I would even go to different towns to try to round up Christians. And at one of those times, I was doing that. I was headed to Damascus. It was 12 in the afternoon, and I saw a bright light, and I fell down. I heard a voice from heaven, and that's what the voice said to me. Saul, Saul, that was Paul's name then, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. And then he says, and then Jesus told me this new life I was going to live and everything that I'd torn down, I was going to start building up. And so that's the picture for us. An ox goad is a pointy stick. And we want to think, I'm sorry, I'm making you an ox today. Go ahead. I want you thinking about yourself in that way. Jesus has a yoke for you. He's inviting you into a, a life, yes, into salvation, but also more specifically for you, there's a certain life that he wants you to live. And if the places where we resist him, it's painful for us. That's what Jesus says to Paul. It hurts you. When that, why are you kicking against the goats? It's hard for you to do that. It, it hurts you. It's detrimental to you. You're getting poked is what he's saying. And the same thing is true for us. So there's a positive and a negative. The positive, here's, here's my yoke, and it fits you well. Negative, if you buck that, you're kicking against the goads, and it's going to hurt. It's not going to go well for you long term. And so we want to hold both of those things together. So the big question, there's a couple. One, do you know the yoke that Jesus wants to put on you? Do you know the life that Jesus is inviting you into today? Yes, salvation. Do you know specifically for you? What's the life that, he's at, that he says, I've got something for you? Psalm 139, my father, he formed you and knit you together in your mother's womb. And I've got this life, and it fits hand in glove with how I made you. Do you have any sense of what that is 
this morning. A few ways that you can look at it. Values. Foundation stones upon which you live your life. Jesus is the cornerstone. He's the first rock that gets laid. And everything else is trued up off of him. But what are the other stones that are specific and unique to you? Hospitality. Is that one for you? You investing in others. Service. Generosity. Some of you make a ton of money. That's a value for you. I make a ton of money. And the reason I make, and I give a ton of money away. It's a value for me. Shape my life around giving things away. Mission, you just saw a dozen people stand up and say, we're going. You shape your life around that. You might not have a clue. If you're thinking, I I don't know what my values are. Then your values are determined by our culture, and that's no good. Our culture is Babylon. Read Revelation 17, 18. It's not good. Our culture is opposed to the kingdom of God, the values of our culture, pull against the values of the kingdom of God. And if you don't intentionally say, this is what I'm standing on individually, if you're married, this is something for you and your spouse to think about together, this is what we're standing on, then by default, you're going to be standing on all of the stuff that's valued out there. You can't help it. It's just by default, that's where you're going to be. I want to encourage you, if you don't know, Read Acts. It's 28 chapters. Just read maybe the first 15. You can probably get everything you need out of that. Look for values. That's where we live. Technologically, we're 2,000 years ahead of Acts. Politically, we're in a different world. Economically, we're in a different world. But spiritually, that's our context. We are still in the book of Acts because Jesus has ascended into heaven and he hasn't returned. So that's where we're living. And see how the people interact. See the values that percolate to the surface in the book of Acts, and then grab a couple of them that resonate deeply with you. All of them are good, and you can't incorporate all of them into your life. You'll go nuts. Take two or three. Hospitality is a great one. Guess who does not have hospitality as a value in their life? Me. I got my hair cut the other day. And the lady who cut my hair said, do you ever talk? And you know what I said? No. Not a value for me. I can grow. I'm never gonna, that's never going to be a foundation stone in my life. And for some of you, it is. And you've got to figure it out before the Lord. Or else you're building on sand. You're letting Babylon decide what your life is going to be shaped around. And let me say this. You're, you are all good enough, smart enough. The things that you're going to wind up building, they're going to look really good. You're not going to build your life on something sinful. What's going to happen, though, is you're going to wind up giving up. You're going to, you're going to trade down. How about that? You're going to take something good and build your life on something good, and you're going to miss the thing that God says, this is actually it for you. There's a, it's this. You're not going to trade God's desires for you for sin. You're not going to do that. Many of us, by default, trade God's desires for us for other things that are, that are good. It's the weeds of this life, the cares of this world. They choke, they choke out the work of the kingdom. And so I want to encourage you, if you don't know, figure it out. Maybe you don't think about your life that way. Rhythm, pace, everybody, in my opinion, rest, work, relationship. You see that in Genesis 1 and 2, before the fall of mankind, you see God saying, this is how I want you to live. Rest, vertically, that's connecting with me. Rest 
horizontally, being renewed and restored. God's seventh day when he rests is Adam and Eve's first day. So before they do anything, they rest. They work from rest. They don't rest from work, which is what we do. The weekend for us is the end of the week. It's not how it was in Genesis 1 and 2. The weekend was the beginning of the week. And then from that place of being renewed by the Lord, doing things that recharge you, then God says, hey, go take care of this garden. Be fruitful and multiply. Do all of that in the context of relationship with me and one another. So all three of those elements, I would say, need to be in the life of every person. It's how God wired you to live under the guidance and the leadership of the Holy Spirit. That's pace. How fast do you live? Very personal. You don't look left and right. How fast are they running their race? How fast is the Holy Spirit leading you to run yours? Do you know where your red line is? And so that's a, that's the, do, you, do, you, do you see the yoke there? What's he inviting you into? If that's the way that you conceive of your life, if that works better for you than values, then look at your life that way. And Do I have all of these elements? Am I living at a pace that I feel like honors God? Elements of your life. You may slice your life up into all these different segments. That's fine. Are you asking Jesus, what are you inviting me into personally? We know he wants to conform us into the image of his son. What else does God want to do? In your closest relationships, are you asking him, what are you inviting me into with my family and friends? What are you inviting me into with my finances, with my work? What are you inviting me into with service, my calling, how I contribute to what you're doing in the world? It doesn't matter to me which one of those you pick or all of them. I'm trying to give you some handholds so you can begin to ask, Jesus, what is your yoke for me? What is your yoke for us and for our family? I want to start individually, and eventually we've got to figure it out together. There's only one for our family, and we've got to figure out how do we pull those things together. It's a process. I want to encourage you to begin to start it. So do you know? Some of you know, and you're not actively implementing. And I know that you know because you've been in small groups with me, and we've done this before. And so I've got your list of values. You can call me, and I'll give them to you because we've done it. And so the question then is, are you actually incorporating those things into your life? Or are you kicking against the goads? Don't hear that as condemnation. But it's going to be painful for you if you continue to live against the life that Jesus has invited you to. He knows you better than you even know yourself. And so let him fit this yoke on you. It's going to fit better than anything that you come up with. So the second thing you can ask yourself is, am I kicking against the goads? So do I have a sense internally of peace and contentment? So I don't want to give you the impression that the yoke Jesus wants to put on you is to win the lottery and go live at the beach for the rest of your life and not do anything. It's not true. Jesus' yoke involves suffering. Peter's involves suffering. Paul's involves suffering. David's involves suffering. Moses involves suffering. Joseph involves suffering. Go through the list. That's it. it does, his yoke doesn't mean that your life suddenly becomes rainbows and butterflies. But what it does mean is that even when you're experiencing difficulties out here, betrayed, abused, insulted, mocked, crucified, in here, you're solid. You're steady internally. That's what I'm saying. Internally, do you have a sense of peace and contentment? Do you sense God's pleasure? That's very nebulous and touchy-feely. 
But maybe you have a sense of what that is. Maybe you can relate that to another authority figure. And when you felt, you know what, I'm, yeah, they're, they're pleased with me right now. They're proud of me and the way I'm, I did my job or whatever those things are. Sensing that from the Lord as well. Is he pleased with the way you're living your life? Do you sense that from him? Do you see fruit? Again, that's not all the time. You may be plowing really hard ground and you're not going to see any. You may still be wearing the right yoke, but you're not seeing a lot of fruit. But it's a good question to ask. If you're not, it's to say, God, I'm not seeing anything. I feel like I'm working like a dog and I don't have anything to show for it. Things are falling apart. And so I need to know, are they falling apart because I'm kicking against the goads? Or are they falling apart for some other reason? Where are you frustrated? Where are you restless? Where do you feel pain, in, like splinters in your heart or your mind? Where are those things? Again, not thinking about externals. It's not what we're talking about internally. What are you sensing from him? Think about those areas of your, think, maybe think about those areas of your life. Is there something that you intentionally don't think about? That might be because you're kicking against the goads in that area and it's embarrassing to you for you to think about that. Are you sleeping? If you're not sleeping, you may be kicking against the goads. You may be doing all the right things, but you may be doing them the wrong way. Galatians 3 talks about beginning in the spirit and finishing in the flesh. So, so easy for us. We get some sense of revelation from God. He wants me to be fill in the blank. He wants us to go after fill in the blank. And then so we start running and we forget real quick that we've got to fill up on a regular basis. Ask the Lord, fill me with your spirit. You've got to enable me to do these things. And we move over into our flesh super fast. So it could very well be that you're doing the right things. You're doing them the wrong way and you're kicking against the goads in that respect. So positive and negative. What is he saying to you? Here's what I'm inviting you into. Can you articulate that? If you can't, don't feel bad. We're going to spend some time and we're going to ask. Over here on the negative, is there any place where I'm experiencing a level of discomfort that makes me wonder if I've missed it? If I'm kicking against the goads, if there's some level of revelation that I've received that I'm not currently incorporating into my life. God does not give suggestions. He doesn't do that. If he reveals something to you, the expectation is that you're going to obey, that you're going to wrap your life around it, whatever that looks like. Again, he, doesn't, he doesn't give advice. This is the way I want you to live. The expectation is, if we're asking him, is that we're willing to adjust our life accordingly. Let's spend a couple of minutes praying before we have to be done. So a couple of things. One, I'm just going to ask some questions, and you can kind of prayerfully mull these over in your heart and mind. One, if you would say this morning, we're singing that song, and that how many times did we sing, sing Oh, How He Loves Us? Forty-nine times we said that. And you may say, I don't, I don't, he might love other people. I'm just not sure about me. Maybe because of something from your past, maybe, who knows? If that's you this morning and you would say, this yoke, I don't have it. The, this invitation to be reconciled to God, I've never said yes. I don't, I would not say God's love for me is foundational to who I am. 
You need to start there. And so, Lord, I pray for anyone today who's never taken upon them your yoke of salvation. They're working their way into heaven. They're trying to be better. They're trying to deal with their guilt on their own. Maybe they're just ignoring. They may be like Herod, and they've got this idle curiosity. They may be like Pilate, and there's a part of them that says, I know, I know that I need him. But there's all this external pressure, and it's just hard to say yes. God, I pray for courage in this moment for them to shuck off that old yoke and to put on yours that says, don't try to be better, just trust me more. And I pray as they do that, and you can just do that in your own heart, that they would experience this deep love that you have for them, that you would give them grace to comprehend how wide and high and long and deep is your love for them. And God, I pray for the rest of us. Many of us have already said yes, and your yoke of salvation we've already taken upon us. But when it comes to the daily living of our lives, it's a mixed bag at best. And I pray you begin to speak to us. Whatever language makes the most sense. Is it speaking to us about values? Is it speaking to us about rhythm? Speaking to us about the different elements of our life? Something else. I just want to pray for the men and women in this room that you would speak clearly to us. Just highlight one thing. This is what I'm inviting you into. So just in your heart, if you're willing, just say, God, what are you inviting me into? Jesus, what does your yoke look like for me? not going to give you the full thing, but maybe you got one word, one area of your life. Hold on to that in one hand. And I also want you to pray this. Jesus, is there an area in my life where I'm kicking against the goats? Where I'm not where I'm resisting your desires for me. You may have gotten something there. You may not. You don't need to hear that again. It's condemnation. It's an opportunity for you to not hurt anymore. This is what's causing you pain. and It's an opportunity to move away from that, to change directions. So if that was you and you felt like the Lord said, hey, it's this. If you're willing, just repent. God, I confess I was moving in the wrong direction. Just be specific. Forgive me. I'm making a choice now to move in the direction that you're wanting me to go. To take your yoke back upon me. And I pray you'd fill me with your spirit to enable me to do that. God, my prayer for everyone in this room is over the course of the next couple of days and this week, 
that we would soak a little bit in your word and in your presence in conversation with people who love us and love you. You get husbands and wives on the same page. What's the life that you're inviting us into? What's the yoke that you want to put upon us? And I pray that maybe the hesitation that we feel, your way is not going to be as great as ours. We like our life as it is, and you're going to come in and mess it up. God, I pray that you deal with us on that level. Again, even as we're approaching Easter, we would realize if you went to the length that you went to in sending your son to such a gruesome death to make relationship with us possible, how much more can we trust you with the details of our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to close with ministry. We've got a couple of minutes. Last week of Lent, one of the things we're going for is physical healing. If you are struggling physically, please let us pray for you. God will heal you between now and Easter. One of the, I think, most common ways we kind of lose sight of this stuff we're talking about, Jesus' yoke, is where maybe we, we feel like the Lord says something to us, but we don't really, we don't submit that. And coming forward and letting people pray for you is one of the ways of making that solid, getting it out of your head and getting it out here. And I would also encourage you to share with other people, hey, this is what I feel like I need to base my life on, or this is a value for us, or I'm running too fast, I don't rest, whatever those things are. um, That's one of the ways to kind of keep, there's some accountability around that that may help you incorporate that into your life. So we want to give you an opportunity to receive prayer for that. So you guys can stand up, respond as you will, and Bo will dismiss us after this song. And ministry teams, y'all can come on.